times, and I hope to meet you soon. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn in them with me, please, to Romans chapter 2. And it's page number 940 in your pew Bible. I don't know what it is in your personal study Bible if you brought that, but in the pew Bibles at least it's 940, Romans chapter 2. And while you're turning there, the children are free to be dismissed for the children's Bible lesson. We're continuing this sermon series through the book of Romans. This is sermon number nine, and the first one now into the second chapter. So it took eight to get through chapter one. But I want you to keep a finger there in Romans chapter two, because I'll reference back to chapter one, uh, particularly verses 29 to 31, at least once in this, this morning's sermon. And it's a brief sermon today, really, because of communion. I say brief, that's too strong of a word. It will be a slightly abbreviated version of, of normal. I, I, I normally try to make sermons about 30 minutes, and it, um, we'll see. It's supposed to, in my notes, at least, it'll be a little bit shorter than that. <clears throat> Romans chapter 2. Please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's holy word, verses 1 through 11, that I'll be reading this morning. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges... For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Lord, please open our eyes and enable us to behold wonderful things from this, your word. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be, you may be seated. <clears throat> I, I can't remember if I've mentioned this before, but one of my uh, one of my confessions that might make you question my man card, uh, holding my man card, is that I read uh, at least the headlines of the Dear Abby and Dear Annie uh, uh, columns in the newspaper. And uh, I think I do it probably because as a minister, I'm involved in a lot of relationships and a lot, a lot, what a, a lot of those uh, things are. And, uh, and Abby's advice is just as great as the Bible, right? So I should uh, read those and learn from them. No, I actually, I'll, I'll see the headline if it's something that's interesting to me. I'll think to myself, right, now how would I answer this biblically? 
and then I'll see what she has to say, and usually it's, uh, it's very, very much the opposite of a biblical answer. But what I've noticed in seeing some of these columns is how often the writer is extremely judgmental towards other people. Or the writer, the one who writes the letters to Abby or Annie, there's an Annie now as well, not just Abby. But uh, the ones who write the letter, they find themselves and they're dealing with feelings of being judged by others. So this idea of judgment, feeling uh, judged by others or judging others. And, and of course, just in the world today, you know, it's been said that that's the 11th commandment. Thou shalt not judge. There's just a lot of conversation about judging and whether it's right or wrong and who can do it. Of course, mostly it's, it's wrong and you should never do it and nobody can ever judge. What are we to think about this idea of judgment? Because that's what's being talked about here. That's what Paul clearly is dealing with in Romans chapter 2. And so for this morning's sermon, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, plan to preach on it again next week. But uh, for this morning's sermon, I just want to give you two points. First of all, is just the teaching. Just the overall teaching of this passage. What is being said? What is Paul saying here? Well, this takes us back to chapter 1, just to give you some overview. <clears throat> In verse 15 of chapter 1, Paul teaches that he is very eager to, pre- eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. Of course, that leads to the question, what is the gospel? We, we, in, the, in the first sermon series, I think, or maybe it was the second, or not series, but the first sermon or second sermon, I talked about the uh, idea of, of asking numerous people, some of your friends, co-workers, whatever, family, what their answer to the question, what is the gospel, is what, what's the answer to that question and so we had all kinds of interesting responses to that but paul says he's eager to preach the gospel gospel means good news and so paul is eager to preach the good news uh, to those who are in rome the christians especially who are in rome now there's a couple ways to think about the gospel uh, being good news there's the good news of the kingdom and then there's the good news of the cross most of the time we think today of it in the in the very specific narrow sense of Christ died for our sins and that is that's true that is wonderfully good news but then there's the gospel of the kingdom which is sort of a bigger picture that God saves sinners he delivers sinners he rules from on high he's not taken aback by anything he's still in charge he's in control his kingdom is coming in the person and work of Christ it is near and so there's this this kingdom concept and then uh, the specific act of the Lord Jesus his work of dying and rising for us all of that is gospel all of that is is good news now why is he so eager to preach it in verse 16 of chapter 1 he says because it's the power of God for salvation in other words, it's power not just in saving us from the curse of sin or the guilty verdict of sin, which for all of us, that guilty verdict means we'd all deserve hell. That would be proper for every single one of us. That's the curse of sin or the verdict of sin. But it's not just the power of God to free us from that, save us from that, but he's, the, the gospel saves us from the power of sin as well. So that just as Hunter was praying a few minutes ago, we might see more godliness, more holiness, more righteousness in our lives. The gospel gives us the power to overcome sin in our lives, not just the curse of sin. Of course, what's implied in that is that man is in sin. Man needs salvation. We need this deliverance. 
And beginning in verse 18 through chapter 3, he's talking about why that is. In beginning in verse 18, he gets into talking about because man has suppressed the truth about God. He's rejected God. He's rebelled against God. And he's actually talking about there, beginning in verse 18, very likely the Gentiles. Now, I haven't really said that to this point, but that's what most scholars believe. He's, he's talking about the Gentiles. Not all of them say that he's talking specifically about the Gentiles. They, some of them will say, well, he's just talking about the generally irreligious people, the, the immoral people, the uncivilized people, the uneducated, unknowledgeable people. Um, you know, in one sense, it doesn't really matter um, because the Gentiles were irreligious for the most part. Um, they were much more immoral than the Jews. And so whether he was really talking specifically about the Gentiles there towards the latter part of chapter 1, and now he's talking about the Jews, um, it, again, it doesn't really matter. All mankind fit into that category in, in many ways being irreligious, immoral. That's what really chapter 2 is, is about here. But he's saying this about them um, and about being subject to the wrath of God. The, the Gentiles, of course, and really all immoral, irreligious people, uncivilized people, would, they would offer you the excuse, well, God doesn't have any right to judge me. He, he can't judge me because, you know, we don't have the revelation from God like the Jews did. We don't have the Bible. We don't have the Ten Commandments. We don't have... Mount Sinai or the Sermon on the Mount. We don't have those things, so God can't judge us. He can't hold us responsible. Paul anticipates that question, so he says in chapter, in chapter 1, verse 20, God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Then we come to chapter 2, and it begins with the word therefore, which always makes you want to look back and see what the word therefore is therefore. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. He once again is saying you have no excuse. And again, this is where most scholars believe he's talking about the Jews. If not the Jews, then at least he's talking about those who are generally religious people, moral people, civilized people. Um, the more sophisticated, educated types. I mean, it's, again, it's at least the latter. Probably, according to most scholars, he's talking about Jews. R.C. Sproul says it's because of this phrase, oh man. He says that biblically when you see that phrase, oh man, that was reserved for the Jews. Again, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. What he says to them, again, what he says is that if the Gentiles or the irreligious or the immoral people... If they, uh, if they are without special revelation from God and they don't have any excuse, then the Jews or you re religious people, civilized people, knowledgeable people, you especially don't have any excuse. Now, why do they not have any excuse? That's what we're looking at here in chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse O oh man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. They don't have any excuse for, for two reasons. One is because they aren't ignorant. You have no excuse, every one of you who...
who judges for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself. We condemn ourselves because by passing judgment on others, we show that we are aware that certain behaviors are wrong. Every time we say, he shouldn't be doing that, she shouldn't be doing that, that's wrong, then we're showing that we're not ignorant. We know what's right. We know what's wrong. And so by simply saying that, we are condemning ourselves. Why? Because we do the very same things. And again, that's, that's why religious folks, the Jews here, or the or civilized, educated, knowledgeable folks are condemned. Because they're not ignorant. And then secondly, because they're bl- they aren't blameless because of what I just said. The, the last part of that first verse is because you, the judge... Practice the very same things. And what are those things? That's where you would flip back to chapter 1, verse 29 and 30 and 31, where again it's talking about the irreligious people, the immoral people. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy. Murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, they are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. The Jews then, what Paul is saying, those people who have some knowledge of God, the religious types, the moral people, the guys on the inside, they aren't free from the wrath of God because they behave in the very same way. And then verse 11 really is the bottom line. For God shows no partiality. Everyone is guilty. Everyone needs the gospel. Everyone needs to be delivered. Everyone needs the good news. This is what Paul is saying here up to this point. And that's point number one. The teaching. The overview. Now, let me try to give you a little application. And it's really just one, one simple thought. Romans chapter 2 should make every one of us in here more humble people. Honest people and humble people. Because I don't know every, every one of you, but I know most of you. And most of you are religious people. You're civilized people. You're sophisticated people. You're educated people. You're, you're knowledgeable people. You're moral people. Y'all are on the inside. We, I'm with you, we're on the inside. These verses are for us. And if we're, in, if we're honest at all, then we would recognize that we're not any better than the irreligious, immoral types mentioned in chapter 1. We may know how to hide our sin better. Especially if you were born and raised in the South, you know how to hide it, hide it really well. So we may know how to hide it better, but we're not any better. I mean, again, chapter 1, beginning in 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness. Covetousness. So you're trying to tell me any time that I want something that God hasn't given me. I'm, I'm coveting. Yeah. Malice. They are full of envy. You know, coveting is when you want uh, 
um, something. Envy is when you uh, when you want uh, you envy people. You covet things and you envy people. And we're guilty of all of that. We're both of those. Murder, strife is mentioned there. Do Christians ever have tension in relationships? We're the same way. Deceit is mentioned there in verses 29 to 31. Is everything we do totally above board? Are we always honest? Maliciousness. They are gossips, it says. Do you ever pass along to people who don't need to know uh, that which presents others in a bad light, even if it's true? We, we do it all the time. We tell people who don't need to know. Slanderers, which is in a sense of making up things about people to, to put them in a bad light. We would never do that, of course, would we? Haters of God. Insolent, haughty, just looking down on others, thinking that we're better than others, boastful. Do you ever try to make sure that others know of your achievements? You would never do that, would you? Are you a name dropper? That's the boastful part. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Christian children would never be disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, cold, unloving. Yeah, kind of hard to argue with Paul when he says, you guys do the very same things. Yeah. Guilty. Francis Schaeffer in his book, um, The Church at the End of the 20th Century, he gives an analogy of how God will, will judge us one day. <clears throat> he said for us to picture <clears throat> at birth, every person, uh, every baby is fitted with an invisible, one of these things essentially, an invisible microphone around the neck. Uh, and, and it records every time the person it stays there forever. And uh, as, the, as the baby grows into an adult, uh, it only comes on and records um, your, your voice when you say things like someone, sh- someone should, you know, fill in the blank, or, or, or people should do this, or people shouldn't do that. And I would, I would expand it and say if it, it, it somehow had an ability to get your thoughts that people are this way or people are that way or um, it, it only recorded in a sense if you ever said he's such a jerk the way he you know, blank, or I can't believe that she's so, you know, fill in the blank. And so then when you die and you're brought to the judgment seat, Schaefer writes, suppose then that God simply touched the tape recorder button and each man heard played out in his own words, his own voice, all those statements by which he had bound other men in moral judgment. He could hear it going on for years. Thousands and thousands of moral judgments made against other men. Not aesthetic judgments, but moral judgments. Then God would simply say to the man, though he had never heard the Bible, now where do you stand in light of your own moral judgments? 
He says the Bible points out that every voice would be stilled. All men would have to acknowledge that they have deliberately done those things which they knew to be wrong. Nobody could deny it. In other words, when God plays back your voice, your recorder, every time that you say those oughts or ought nots, God will judge you on your own standards even, on your own judgments. In other words, we're all going to be judged based on what our own voice has said is right and wrong and whether or not we did those very same things we say are right or wrong. We're all in in big trouble in that sense. (laughs) That is a very scary thought. You know, it's just amazing how so many times we have um, very, we're very critical towards others, but very lenient and permissive with ourselves. I mean, the Jews, they were the people of God. They were the religious ones. They were, they were civil. They were, they were educated. They were moral, at least outwardly. They were on the inside, but that does not guarantee a relationship with God, a right relationship with God. I mean, the Jews, in a sense, they were the ones who, in a sense, touted family values, but they didn't really practice them for themselves. They were quick to point out the sins of others, but they hid the very same sins in themselves. The way the ESV study Bible uh, reads is, is this way. According to the Jews, they were not storing up wrath. The Jews didn't think they were storing up wrath, but were in good standing with God through their covenant relationship, not needing to meet God's standard a perfect obedience, but needing only an intention to obey God. And we Christians, we can be the same way. We can think, well, Jesus died for our sins. I know that. We're all good. Or we're Protestants. We don't follow the Pope. <laughs> we're good. Or even better, listen, we're Reformed. We really understand grace. It's a matter of the heart. It's, what, it's what's on the inside that counts. And he says, speaking of the heart, Paul says in verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You know, the... The key for us all in walking with God is a soft and broken heart, a contrite heart. That's the way it reads in the 51st Psalm, which is the Psalm of David's confession, confessing his sin with Bathsheba. And we're going to sing that 51st Psalm at the end of the service here. But in 51 verse 17, we read the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. And that takes us back to verse 4 of chapter 2, which reads, Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And then verse 5, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. What should characterize every Christian is a constant demeanor, um, stance, of repentance. Hard hearts, impenitent hearts, they destroy a man. And God's kindness, Paul says here, it's intended to give you space 
His patience is intended to give you time not to just keep wallowing in sin, but to repent. That His kindness, His, His patience is a gift of time. It's a gift of mercy, not so that you can just continue to wallow in sin, but to, to repent of sin. It's, it's a great gift of the Lord. Again, you may think, well, I know the gospel. I know that Jesus died for our sins. I know my Bible. I understand grace. But how, how are you doing when that voice recorder plays back your voice? How am I doing when it plays back my voice? Those are scary thoughts. And what, when we think about that, what my prayer is for every single one of us is, is that there is humble, repentant, uh, hum, humility and repentance that takes place. I can't remember which... Um, which in my research where this came from, but I found this one paragraph that I thought was very good about this. The way to moral and spiritual health is to direct my criticisms upon myself. I must stand in the dock and the witness stand in a sense. I must stand in the dock and hear the grave indictment of my own soul. Unless I pass through the second chapter of Romans I can never enter the fifth and sixth and still, less the, and still less the glorious forgiveness of the eighth where we read, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. I pass into that warm, cheery light through the cold road of acknowledged guilt and sin. You know, in the, in the Dear Abbeys, you don't often see a lot of people talking about repentance but i think one of the reasons it was on my mind was because i saw even this week um there was the headline said i've failed in a 30-year marriage and as a father of five now you might think well is that me did i write that one because i'm a father of five and i've been married 34 years um uh, but uh yeah i saw that and that one caught my attention and it caught my attention because you don't see that kind of honesty and humility. I mean, I'm not saying the writer confessed his sin, that he repented, that he returned to the Lord. I'm not saying that. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. But he certainly acknowledged his failures. And that's step one in a life of constantly repenting, which needs to be our stance as believers. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we sing in just a few moments uh, and sing the prayer that David prayed in Psalm 51, God be merciful to me. Lord, that is indeed our prayer. It's my prayer for every single one of us here today. Indeed, Lord, it's on Thy grace we rest our plea. Plenteous in compassion, Thou. Blot out our transgressions now. Lord, wash us. Make us pure within. Cleanse, O oh, cleanse us from all our sin. Through Jesus. Amen.